Hi, Salima here. Please help us produce our people-powered radio at radioproject.org. Thank you, and here's the show. I'm Monica Lopez, this week on Making Contact. We bring you a story about resilience and rebuilding after a megafire decimated parts of Northern California. This is Episode 6 of The Response, Reimagining Paradise in an Age of Climate Disruption. blazes the campfire that burned through Paradise, California in our will I've covered a lot of fires over the last decade, and this is the worst fire I've ever seen. It was the fastest moving fire. Paradise is one town that was almost completely decimated by the fire. It looks like everything from businesses, churches, grocery stores. I mean, there is really nothing left behind here. Um, right now we're, we're standing in the room that I grew up in and there is nothing left. There is red dirt and gravel left in place from the excavators that scooped away my home. And I am at a loss. Like thousands of others in paradise, the house that Alan Myers grew up in was burned to the ground on November 8, 2018, during the Camp Fire, the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California's history. The fire was sparked by a faulty transmission line operated by the Pacific Gas and Electric Company, which has been diverting money away from basic infrastructure maintenance and towards higher profits and executive bonuses for years. Starting from that spark, Strong winds and dry conditions caused the campfire to grow at an unfathomable speed, eventually tearing through 150,000 acres and taking most of the town of Paradise with it in a matter of hours. Here we are at the, the driveway. Here's the front door. Um, you would have walked in here. Um, what we're seeing is a dirt pit right now. What you would have seen is uh, our dining room table. You open into the dining room table. The back was the fireplace where... Empty lots like Allen's, delineated simply by rectangles of rust-red soil native to this region, are a defining feature of Paradise's post-apocalyptic landscape. The home was originally built out of a shack. As we drove to his property on the eastern edge of town, exactly one year after the fire, we passed by the remnants of burnt-out cars, charred stumps of gray pine and western redbud, and steel mailboxes that stood silently in front of, well, nothing. Right here would be the kitchen, and it would look out onto this beautiful water maple, big leaf water maple. My dad first moved here, the owners of it, thinking that they wanted things cut down, wanted more space, they cut down this beautiful maple. And my dad, with great care, stewarded one of the volunteer shoots and stump cultured it into a beautiful tree that shaded this back deck that he also built by hand. 
So these windows from the kitchen looking out onto that tree that would be full of birds and bird feeders and, and now it's a bird stump. And what gives us such hope is that you see this burnt stump and you see maybe a hundred volunteer shoots that are about four feet tall at max height and we're going to steward one of those shoots into a beautiful maple once again. The campfire destroyed 11,000 homes and displaced 50,000 people in the Sierra Nevada foothills, a small but no less significant portion of the 1.2 million people in the United States who were displaced by natural disasters in 2018 alone. Many of Paradise's former residents have moved to surrounding towns or are staying with family members or friends in places like Chico and Redding, while others were forced onto the streets. And although the process of rebuilding the town is now underway, the fact remains that only 11 houses have been rebuilt in the last year, and that many people are simply not coming back. But Alan is. And in this episode of The Response, we'll follow his journey since the fire, which has been guided by a very important question. In this age of climate disruption and record-shattering megafires, hurricanes, and all the rest, how do you rebuild from scratch? And not just rebuild the old systems and structures that weren't working for most people in the first place, but how do you rebuild a town better than it was before, with greater resilience, equity, and humanity? Cool. Yeah, so I was born and raised in Paradise, California, a small town in this western-facing slopes of the Sierra Nevadas, and I was shaped by nature, and yeah, I would hike down to the river almost daily as a kid. My dad taught me how to fly fish and pan for gold. And yeah, it was a childhood spent outdoors. But then I, there's also a darker side to it. You know, like any of these rural communities, there also is depression, poverty, opioid addiction. Once I got to high school, I had a friend either commit suicide or die from a drug overdose once a year. And that continued a couple of years after graduation. That's, yeah. So I left Paradise like a lot of my friends as soon as I could. It was like, get me out of this town. Let me see the world. And I uh, went to several different universities. And then for eight years, I lived out of a backpack and traveled the world and got into photography and filmmaking. And on November 8th, 2018, I was in Kansas City filming and my aunt called me. She said that there was a fire near Paradise. Shortly after that, I got a call from a friend in Chico and she was crying and she said, I'm so sorry. I heard your house burned down because she heard that our neighbor's house burned down. And then it just didn't end. It just got worse and worse. And it got really scary as you knew that friends and family were trapped in a town that was in a firestorm. And I had a scheduled trip to be there on November 9th. I was supposed to be there on November 9th and I continued with those plans. What changed was the expectations of that trip and the duration. 
knowing the state of people and the scale of disaster and the economic situation for many of them before the fire, I knew that there was going to be a lot of need. And so I stayed. During the next few months, Alan, along with many others, was involved in various aspects of the relief and recovery work, ranging from housing to health care. The medical infrastructure was just completely decimated with the fire. Elizabeth Gunderson is a nurse practitioner. She grew up in paradise with Alan and also came back to help after the fire. Given that the population here is older and many of them are medically fragile, you know, not having a medical infrastructure was a huge barrier for them being able to repopulate. So we talked about forming a free clinic that would serve the ridge and kind of act as an access point and filling in the gap as medical services started to come back to the ridge. And we wanted it to be free and we wanted to go where people were, so we wanted to be mobile. So we kind of just went to wherever people were congregating, still kind of figuring out how to move on after the fire and started seeing patients. So that's how we started. Elizabeth's organization, MedSpire, is still around. In fact, when we spoke to her, they were in the middle of putting on a free flu shot clinic for the residents of Megalia, an unincorporated community just to the north of Paradise, which was also burned in the camp fire. Of course, MedSpire hasn't been able to provide full health care services, but they are making a big impact for many folks who need medical care. It is one small step helping to make the region habitable to those who are at risk of being fully displaced. But the most pressing need is still housing. That was the most urgent need and still remains one of the most urgent needs for people because we're a rare, developed, powerful country in that we do not guarantee support for survivors of natural disasters. And how do you rebuild a town without the people that were living there? They need to be a part of it. And if they're displaced or if they're living in their car or on the street, they're not going to be a part of rebuilding the community. Somebody else will. And then that's not the town because the people are what make up the town. Alan had a vision for a project that would provide housing in paradise for those who were displaced. He was reaching out to landowners and architects, trying to make his vision a reality. But things just weren't really flowing. We're looking for housing, we're organizing, we're looking at what the projects are. And there became a moment where five months in, my health was suffering and I needed to take a break. And I'd always wanted to go to Japan. And I put this note in my head that I only go there if, if there's purpose. But this came up and I was like, I'll just go. And as soon as I said, I'm just going, a mentor of mine, Dr. Bob Stilger, said, you're going to where? You're going to Japan? Okay, hang on. And he gets out his pen and paper and he starts writing all these names down of the people that I need to meet. And going to Japan was a learning journey on post-disaster recovery for a community. Seven years before the campfire burned through paradise on the opposite side of the Pacific Ocean, a massive magnitude 9.0 earthquake struck off the coast of Japan. The earthquake was the fourth most powerful to ever be recorded worldwide, and it triggered a massive tsunami that reached 50 feet in height and ultimately resulted in the infamous meltdown of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant and the complete destruction of many towns in Japan's coastal Tohoku region. Now eight years into their recovery, 
Japan has many valuable lessons to impart when it comes to rebuilding from nothing. And one town in particular has been doing some very interesting things. We went to a specific town called Onagawa that has been doing things differently from the rest of the neighboring communities. They've taken the radical choice of seeing what is possible rather than seeing how they can rebuild what was. And so they had a young mayor, Mayor Suda, who grew up in the community, came home and invited in the community to talk about what is possible now that this is our reality. This is Suda-san. After losing his childhood home in the tsunami, he decided to return to Onagawa and run for office, successfully becoming one of the youngest mayors in Japan. Knowing they would not live to see the effects of their decisions, the elders of the town came to the unique conclusion that it would be best to give Sudasan and other young leaders decision-making power over the recovery and supported and encouraged their leadership. One thing that I did was that I wanted to get more people involved in the planning for the rebuilding of Onagawa, which is quite rare in Japan because in Japan, in most places, the government will just prepare a plan and then impose it on the people. But what I did was I got everyone involved in thinking together. So instead of simply accepting the rebuilding plans passed down from the town's official planning commission, Mayor Suda decided he was going to hold a series of small listening circles with community members to find out what they actually wanted. Hi, this is Bob. Bob Stilger is the mentor that Alan mentioned earlier. He's a kind of activist scholar who travels the world helping people to reimagine what's possible and build the lives and communities that they want. He spent time in both Paradise and Japan, which is where we reached him. What started to emerge in Japan was basically a community that would keep both beauty and safety as its core organizing principles. The decision that was made was they would go in and remove the mountaintops that surrounded the harbor and then construct the new residential area for Onagawa on the top of those mountains where the tsunamis would never come. They take the soil from those mountaintops and bring it down to build a second level above sea level that is several meters high, higher than almost all tsunamis. That's where the schools and the library and the commercial district and other facilities are being built. Then they keep the sea level for industries and fisheries, so a three-level town. They designed a seamless transportation link, roadways that create a clear connection between the three levels. And again, they've kept beauty as the key organizing principle. This is the transformation, going from a catastrophic disaster to a once-in-a-thousand-year opportunity. The mountaintops are removed. The residential areas are being constructed. It's been a challenge. Everyone's been living in temporary housing for eight years now. What sustained them is knowing that they are together building a new community that will be beautiful and safe for many years. Mm-hmm. 
to Japan and meeting with community members, organizers, government officials there, you know, when we looked at each other, there was this knowing. It was like we knew each other on a deep level because of the experiences and the decisions we were having to make. And in leaving each conversation, there would just be this, uh, a moment and they would either say it or you would see it in, in their expression, but you know, of support and understanding and saying, you got this. I know it's a, a long road ahead of you, but you can do this. Any, any message for paradise? I know you all are in a difficult situation right now. And it's taken eight years for us to get here. For us, it took half a year just to get electricity back to the entire town, including the temporary emergency housing. It took about that long to get running water too. But even still, our town was completely full of rubble. That's the situation we started from. So this early time is really crucial. And of course, it's important to focus on improving the immediate situation. But I believe the period that will follow will be even more crucial. So I know you're in a difficult situation right now, and it seems like a race against time. But those aren't the only priorities. And if I could invite you to think like this, it would be a first step. The most important considerations are local, your community's unique needs in whatever format, public, neighborhood groups, private sector, or in relationship together. There will be things that will go well and lots of things that won't go well. If there isn't open communication, you want to know which sectors are doing well. After our disaster, and then the national disaster that occurred afterwards, we listened to the concerns of the community. We went out and visited people and heard their stories. I know there are painful circumstances for you all, but I urge you to move forward together and become unified. There is undoubtedly a path forward. There is a future. Believe in that and go forth. After disasters, there's always a tension between rebuilding as quickly as possible and taking the time to rebuild in a new way with increased resilience. This was perhaps one of the biggest lessons that Alan brought back with him from Onagawa. That and understanding the importance of putting the community front and center in the rebuilding process. How to have a community-led recovery in Japan versus paradise. It's going to be difficult. It already is very difficult for paradise. In Japan, there is a law that guarantees housing for survivors affected by a natural disaster. So immediately, the community is housed and in place to be in conversation. With Paradise, that is not the case at all. You have families spread around the country. There is families in every single state that have been displaced by the fire. So for us to be in conversation about a community-led recovery, it's hard when the community isn't there. But 
Yeah. For Japan, they organized community meetings. The mayor would go to different celebrations, different events, because they saw the need to come together not only for conversation, but for spirit and, and healing, for community building. So they had a lot of different events, and the mayor would go and listen and be in conversation. And for us, we've been trying. One of the first efforts in bringing the community together was convened by a long-term recovery planning group called Urban Design Associates, who had helped in the recovery of post-Katrina New Orleans. They took Paradise on a visioning process. And of a thousand respondents to questions that they put out, asking, what are our opportunities now? What are our values as a community? What is quintessential to paradise? And what can we afford to let go of? And something that has stuck with me is that when asked what our values were, the top two responses were Number one, nature, and number two, community. These are what are quintessential to paradise. So with that, how do we use those values to guide each decision that we make in rebuilding our town? That's part of how we came up with the Paradise Revival Festival. The Paradise Revival Festival took place on October 12th and was meant to bring people together to celebrate, heal, and explore what comes next. It featured a resource expo that brought together Permaculture Action Network, a seed library, solar energy advocates, and more. It was also a place for healing, offering yoga workshops, guided meditation, acupuncture, massage, and art therapy. Musicians from Paradise who hadn't performed in the town since the fire were also invited to be a part of the celebration, where, on an outdoor stage, they provided a soundscape that emanated out over the community off the ridge, and into the canyon surrounding Paradise. There is this incredible pull, this incredible vacuum that wants us to go back to what was, which was a pre-disaster, which was disastrous conditions for a lot of families. And it is a fight. <laughs> because if you're not active, if you're not doing something to counter that, it will go back to what it was. And frankly, we're at a time where it means life and death, not only for us as individuals, as families, but for species, for our entire planet. I feel that when I talk about it and when I see that paradise has burned down for a myriad of reasons, a mismanaged corporate industry that cares more about profit than it does about human lives and how they operate. Climate-driven fire, where we're losing thousands of species a year because of climate change and conditions that fueled a fire that destroyed a town, destroyed my home. If we go back to the way we were, we're just setting ourselves up for further and further disasters. Unlike Onagawa, Paradise is only one year out from their disaster. This means that, realistically, they're still in the very early stages of envisioning how they want to rebuild. It also means that they're at a crucial point which could really define how they move forward. As Alan said, the forces that are pulling the town back to the status quo are definitely real. And when you drive through Paradise, you see that. People just want their town back. 
But the reality is that paradise exists in fire country. Onagawa was able to literally rebuild their town on higher ground. But what could paradise do in their rebuilding process to mitigate the risk of their town burning again? There are a number of ways, from building houses with fireproof materials, expanding roads, proper forestry management, microgrids and solar power that could bypass PG&E transmission lines, all things that Allen and others have been exploring. But many of these tools are long-term strategies that could take quite a while to implement. How can Paradise ensure that as the town moves forward, years, maybe decades into the future, that they remember the lessons of November 8th and remain on the right path? In Japan, the kids there created a memorial of sorts that also serves as a warning to their community and to future generations to say, on this date, the water reached here. And if you are below this line, you are not safe to serve as a reminder of what's possible, what could happen. And I wonder what is an applicable element that could exist in paradise to serve as a similar reminder. Morning, guys. I'm Bill. Bill Hartley is the vice president of the Gold Nugget, which was paradise's town museum before it burned down in the fire. Well, the old location was just about a stone throw away on the other side of the road. And uh, it completely burned to the ground. We lost all the artifacts. We pretty much lost all of our history. So we recognized that we need to start over again, gather more artifacts, maybe design a future museum that will tell the story of this fire so other people can see what happened here in paradise and learn from our experience and maybe protect themselves so that it doesn't happen to them. And that's one of our main missions right now is to tell that story. Making sure that the community remembers the fire will be an important part of the new Gold Nugget Museum. But the vision extends well beyond that. They plan to build a new community center, which would provide tools and resources, such as learning and maker spaces, a tool library, and a forestation area where residents could learn about fire-resistant plants and other safety techniques. So our aim will be an educational approach, not to necessarily just be remembered for a fire that destroyed our community, but as a community of resilience. With tragedy comes opportunity, and we have an opportunity now to be the community you want to be. You can dream big and big things happen. So whatever you envision for a community that you want to make yours and to be proud of, you have that opportunity to build that. And uh, there's a lot of wonderful things, I think, that will happen as a result of that. We will be the community we want to be. We will make it look that way. It's a great opportunity. I am very excited. (laughs) I'm very excited. And, I mean, with that, there is still so much pain that exists. The pain that we have, the loss that we're feeling is because on the other side of that is our love for the place and our love for each other. So being able to push through that, recognize it, but but don't be consumed by it and have it fuel our recovery. And I'm I'm having so much fun in a multi-generational recovery path from kids that I grew up with in paradise that have returned home to my parents, friends, and elders on the ridge who have been there for decades and seeing the possibility for a future that wasn't there before 
and we've been released from a future that we didn't necessarily want. And now we're getting to decide what that looks like. And yeah, it's exciting. I mean, building a town is a lot of fun. <laughs> and doing with people you love. I've been out of paradise for 15 years and at this point, I can't imagine being anywhere else. And I know I'm exactly where I should be doing the work that I, I should be doing. You've been listening to The Response on Making Contact. This show was written and produced by Robert Raymond and hosted by Tom Llewellyn. For a full list of credits, go to radioproject.org. For the rest of the Making Contact team, I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.